That's why actually the book of Genesis is such an important foundational book in the Bible because a lot of the first mentions of things happen to be in the book of Genesis. Babylon, a subject we're going to talk about tonight, a city we're going to talk about tonight, a concept, a spirit we're going to talk about tonight, is mentioned 287 times in Scripture. In fact, the only other city that is mentioned more than Babylon in the Bible is Jerusalem. And Babylon is mentioned from Genesis to Revelation not only as a literal city in the Middle East. It is also describing a spirit, if you will. A spirit that is pervasive and is entrenched as the foundation of all false worship. From the time we were first introduced, if you will, to Babel or eventually Babylon in the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And we're going to see that again tonight. So though we're going to read through Revelation 17, you're going to have to sort of be on your own to do the detail work if you want any more, because tonight we need to take a step back, sort of look at it from out the window of the airplane and see a little bit bigger picture tonight about this concept that's going on here called Babylon. In fact, before we ever get into Revelation chapter 17, well, you know what? Let me go ahead and read the first couple verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me. Come and he said, I will show you the condemnation and punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and the earth's inhabitants got drunk with the wine of her immorality. So he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now the woman was dressed in purple, scarlet clothing, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls. She held in her hand a golden cup filled with detestable things and unclean things from her sexual immorality, and on her forehead was written a name, a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. The reason she is called a mystery here is for this reason. In Revelation chapter 17, God is going to describe sort of a spirit behind everything, not something that is tangible as he's going to describe in Revelation 18. And what I mean by that is this. God is going to sort of set forth and say, look, there's, there's three dominant sort of, sort of powers in the world. There's, a, there's religion, there's politics, and there's economics. And they have been driving things ever since pretty much the beginning of time. And that though he's going to talk tangibly about no, false religion and, and, and the political world and the, the economic commercial world next week. What he wants us to understand, and one of the reasons he calls this great prostitute or harlot a mystery, is because he's trying to get us to see, too, that there's also a spirit at work and has been a spirit at work underneath everything, uh, in everything, in religion, in politics, and in the commercial ventures of the world, ever since the Tower of Babel, where this spirit of Babylon, if you will, this godless, what I call godless humanism, got started. 
where man is the measure of all things, where man is the final reality of everything, and not God. In fact, turn to Genesis chapter 11 for just a moment, and let's see the first mention of this whole concept, which takes us all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 11. Some of you are very familiar with this story. Notice it says in verse 1, the whole earth at this time had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now all already, to give you a little context here, they have already disobeyed God. Because God told them, go fill the earth, scatter. They didn't. They huddled together and they stayed together. So they were already being disobedient to the will and word of God. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens so that we may make a name for God. No. A name for ourselves, see? Their goal was, let's make a name for ourselves. And there's also, I think, great evidence. Again, I don't have time to go into all the background. That I think there's also in this statement of purpose, a distrust and disbelief in what God had promised. Remember, God had promised the, the nations of the world, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And one of the motivations for them building such a high tower was they really didn't believe God. And they thought, we're going to have to build something tall in order if the floodwaters come that, you know, we can escape to and not be swept away like we were before. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, you see. And what we have is a group of people who have now come together and instead of giving God the glory... Instead of making a name for God and elevating God, we now have the beginnings again of this godless humanism, of this false worship that begins here. So they said, let's build this, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. Now notice verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. Not because he didn't know what was going on. It's the idea of of the condescension of God, of how high God is. That God is elevated in the heaven, the place of worship. And and these people think that they're so proud and and so arrogant. and, And they can just disregard God and all of that and build this tower which, which also begins, if you'll notice throughout history, man builds himself lots of towers. Lots of towers. Every society in history had lots of towers. A lot of these monuments of men are monuments to man's insecurity, is what it really is. Because they don't find their security in God, who is to be worshipped. So they try to somehow make themselves feel more secure by building great towers to themselves and making a name for themselves. So the Lord comes down to see what was going on. And the Lord said, if it's one people all sharing a common language, they began to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. 
What he's saying there is that man has great potential for good, but man also has great potential for evil. And instead of these people coming together for good, to encourage each other to to glorify God, they actually are coming together and doing nothing but planning to do evil and, and basically to live lives of idolatry and make a name for themselves. Therefore, God says, verse 7, come, let's go down. Notice, God is referred to here in the plural, which gives us evidence even in the book of Genesis again, of the Trinity. Let's go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there about the face of the entire earth and they stopped building the city. That is why its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. By the way, just a side note before we go back to Revelation. If you don't believe what the Bible says, then you don't really have an answer for why there are so many languages on the earth today. In fact, linguists that don't believe in God or the Bible don't have an answer as to why are there so many languages. And yet, if you talk to some linguists, I have some friends that aren't saved but are in that field, they will admit that all different languages actually have their origin in one language from long ago. Yeah, gee, just think, God's word might actually be correct. So anyway, I take you back there because, again, the law of first mention, everything about that we're reading about Babylon and all this in the book of Revelation, to be fair to you, and that's why I felt like we need to take a telescopic view rather than a microscopic view, it's not fair to just jump into the book of Revelation and be able to grasp all that John is talking to us about, about this Babylon and this great prostitute and the fact that she's sitting on many waters or many peoples and has this powerful influence because of this pervasive entrenched spirit of godless humanism in the world. We've got to we got to start with Genesis and go all the way through and see how Babylon is spoken about by God in the Word. And it builds 287 times through the Word of God to bring us to this point. So that's why I thought that this was necessary tonight. So going back to Revelation chapter 17, we see here then from Genesis that this is what is happening here. That there is this spirit that is the foundation of false worship. And what John is trying to describe here is the fact that this spirit can be seen in man's religion. It can be seen in man's politics. And it can be seen in man's commercial or economic ventures. Though... Though they are their own thing, the Bible clearly says there's always a spirit, if you will, driving things. And, and what John is trying to get us to see here is that the values of the people now and the values of the people at this time in history before the Lord comes back who have forsaken God 
and, and followed this spirit, if you will, of humanism, where man is the measure of all things and the final reality, have two values that really drive them. I wanted to mention these tonight. I don't want to get too philosophical, but I think that this is important. Two values that really drive humanism. One is personal peace, and the other one is affluence. Personal peace and affluence. And here's how personal peace is defined. Here's how I define personal peace from a humanistic standpoint. And see if this does not describe the way man is going today. To be left alone, not troubled by other people and their woes. To live one's life with minimal possibility of being disturbed. That's what man wants. I want to be able to live so that I can be unaffected by everything that's going on around me. And that's why even though we live in a world that is bursting with technology, where people could actually be in some way meaningfully connected to each other, you have more people today who are lonely and who don't have meaningful, deep relationships because we have literally walled ourselves off because we bought into the fact that the real thing I'm looking for is simply to just be by myself and not allow what's happening in the world, not allow what's happening uh, you know, around me in my neighborhood to people to, to affect me in any way. That's why many people today don't even know who their neighbors are, unlike 50 to 100 years ago, where everybody in the neighborhood knew who their neighbors were. Because we have literally walled ourselves off personal peace. That is the number one of the two. Th- and then the other one is affluence. An overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. A life made up of material possessions and convenience. These are the two values of godless humanism. And if you think about those, they go against everything that the Bible and Jesus himself taught that was a life of meaning. Not to be isolated, but to help one another and, and to be involved with each other, just as God is with us. Obviously, God didn't take that stance. Jesus Christ left the comforts and glories of heaven and came to earth to be our Savior. And it took upon himself humanity. So he, he was affected. And he allowed himself to be affected by all of that. And those who follow him, instead of isolating ourselves and walling ourselves off and trying to live by being unaffected by everything that's going around and being like an ostrich who just sticks our head in the sand and doesn't even, you know, I, I don't want to know what's going on in the world. Really? I hear a lot of Christians say that today. I, I just don't want to know how, how bad it is. I, I, you know, I don't want to watch the news, whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I understand that to a point, but as a Christian, don't you think we need to understand the world in which we live and what is happening to us? And, and instead of like sticking our head in the sand and pretending like everything's going to be okay, that again, going back to even our message about Romans a couple weeks ago, that we live in reality rather than in this fantasy world that somehow we want to make up as if, well, it's not really as bad as it really is. Because that's what humanism is all about. 
And that's what drives them along with that affluence. That's why in Revelation chapter 17, you have this great harlot, notice in verse 4, dressed in purple, scarlet clothing, covered with gold, precious stones, because her attire reflects her commercialism. She is consumed with materialism and wealth. And this, is again, has pervaded and entrenched itself in religion, It has entrenched itself in politics. Obviously, then, it's what primarily drives everything as far as the economy and commercialism goes. So, verse 5, On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother, the source of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. By the way, you'll notice in this passage of Scripture that many times... The translation is immorality or sexual immorality. At the end of verse 2, the earth's inhabitants got drunk with the wine of her immorality. Then at the end of verse 4, unclean things from her sexual immorality. The point I want to make is this. The meaning of this Greek word could actually be translated immorality, sexual immorality, or idolatry. Because that's really what is happening here. It is immorality, but it's, it's at its foundation, it's idolatry because of this. I, I wanted to make this connection today. All immorality from God's perspective is actually idolatry. Because when you think about it, every immoral act that man does is basically saying to God, God, I don't want to do what you want to do or what your standard of morality is. I want to do what my you know, desires and passions and all that do. And it's a form of self-worship. All immorality, from God's perspective, is a form of self-worship rather than, again, revering and respecting God and what God thinks. And so that's why the concept of immorality and idolatry is really interchangeable in the Bible. And why even the meaning of the Greek word has both shades of meaning. Because instead of, again, giving God the proper worship, instead of God being the final reality, instead of God living to build a name for Him and bringing Him glory, we've been reduced over the centuries to more and more buy into a godless humanism where man is the measure of all things rather than God. And this spirit, John says, is all over the place. Again, the reason he says in verse 1, the great prostitute was sitting, that means a fixed position among many waters. The word waters here you could also translate as peoples. He's simply saying, this spirit is pervasive and entrenched in the world. Not just in one country, it's all over the place. And we see that today. Even in religion. How much of religion is... Man making a name for himself. How much of religion is wrapped up in material things rather than really spiritual things? Where churches and ministries and all of that are more interested in building their little kingdoms on earth, if you will, rather than building God's kingdom, you see. It is so pervasive and entrenched that it's... it's, in every fabric of our society. And the reason why John is 
teaching us about this even before all this happens and we're going to be gone anyways. He's trying to give us a warning. Be careful of the world in which you live and live in the reality of what is. And don't be an ostrich and just stick your head in the sand. Figure out what the reality is and be aware of these things so that you don't begin to get sucked into it, if you will. And so that you can be a light to those who are being sucked into it because it's all over the place. It's in every human institution because it has been there ever since the Tower of Babel. And it will continue to be on this earth in every human institution until Jesus comes back and sets up his earthly kingdom on a whole different principle and foundation than humanism. Notice, John says, I saw that the woman, verse 6, was drunk, had shed profusely the blood of the saints and the blood of those who testified to Jesus. So don't miss what else John is saying. This spirit produces a hatred of those who follow Jesus Christ. They are focused on the destruction of the godly. And there is no, you know, tolerance, if you will, of Christ or Christianity at all. John is saying that it's always been that way. There's always going to be persecution of those who are truly following Christ. Is that not what Paul said when he said, Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. And we even see that here. Why? Because there's a spirit that's driving it. Either God is going to be on the throne or man is going to be on the throne. And as we said Sunday, if I'm not going to worship God, then as a human being, I'm going to create a God of my own making that fits my life the way I want it. And that's why it's so important that we understand the Word of God And that our concept of God is biblical. Rather than saying, yeah, I worship God, but it's a God that I've cooked up, and it's a God that I've dreamed up in my own mind, that He's this way. When the Bible teaches us, no, this is is who God is. Which is why we need to go back to our concept of God needs to be biblical. Why Jesus even said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit, but also in truth. It's got to be right. It's got to be correct. It's got to be an accurate view of God. And we even see creeping into the church today that, that many Christians have an inaccurate view of God because it's not based on what the Bible teaches God is. It's based on what they've heard other people say God is or their own imagination or even desire of who they want God to be. And that's all part of it as well. So notice, John says in verse 6, I was greatly astounded when I saw her. Because I think John just can't believe the influence, the worldwide influence that the spirit of Babylon, if you will, has and how pervasive and entrenched it is in all human institutions. The angel said to me, why are you astounded? I will interpret or teach for you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her or supports her. And now what John's going to attempt to do, I know a lot of this is is heavy and we don't have time to go into all this detail, but John now is basically going to take these next few verses 
to again show us how this spirit of Babylon is, is, has crept into the, to the world leadership, if you will, at this time. But he's also reminding us here in this passage that this spirit has been prevalent and, and has been part of all world empires ever since Genesis chapter 11, you see, back there. So he's talking here about verse 8, the beast you saw was and is not, but is about to come up from the abyss and then go to destruction. He's just reminding us about what he taught earlier about the Antichrist who came on the world scene, sort of in his mortal stage, got inflicted with this mortal wound and seemingly died, and then came back again and the whole world was, you know, worshiping. So he's, he's reminding us of the mortal stage of the Antichrist and sort of the supernatural stage that's empowered by Satan of the Antichrist. And, and what that also reminds me of is, is I think that the Antichrist is going to be very, very mortal and very normal even in his first ascension on the world stage. It won't be till after he's inflicted with this mortal wound that sort of then Satan literally empowers him and he becomes sort of this supernatural figure being able to do all these signs and wonders to be able for people to, to follow him. So even in that short amount of time on earth, I see a change here even in the Antichrist himself. And notice the Bible says that the inhabitants of the earth, all those whose names have not been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world, will be astounded in great admiration when they see that the beast was and is not, but is to come. Wow. You know, we've said, uh, who is like the beast? And so they'll worship the Antichrist rather than worshiping the true Christ. Now John says in verse 9, look, this requires a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains the woman sits on. They are also seven kings and also seven kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms, one and the same. Notice John is writing here in verse 10, five have already fallen, even as John is writing about this. One is... And the other has not yet come, but whenever he does come, he must remain for only a brief or short time. Again, without getting too confused or too caught up into what John is simply saying, he's just reminding us, look, there's going to be a lot of political upheaval. Well, guess what? What do we see today? But what John is simply saying is, oh, you think there's political upheaval now? Wait till after the rapture. Wait till during the tribulation when there's this unbelievable power struggle on earth between all these world leaders who are left because they, they see an opportunity here. They see an opportunity to, to maybe be, you know, in control and rule the world and be the measure of all things and be the final reality. And let's face it, in politics... What has always driven man without divine influence in his life? It's always been about power and control. That's what it is. We want power so that we can control what goes on. Where again, what's Jesus teach about leadership and being out there? Jesus says, 
uh, I think leaders should be those who serve. I, I, think, I think the greatest in my kingdom is the one who's willing to humble himself and be least. See, his, his, Jesus just totally turns the value system of, of those who are striving after this godless humanism. Because there's nothing meaningful at the end of this value system. When people strive for personal peace and affluence, and that's their values that drive every decision and choice they make, what they end up with is a meaningless life. Because instead of living a life that is selfless, a life that puts themselves out there, that is vulnerable, that, that it's out there to try to serve others and, and help others. It's a life that's just totally isolated, protected, walled up, unaffected by what's going on. And then it's all about more material things, more prosperity, ever-increasing personal income, and that's what drives everything. Not laying up treasure in heaven. Not sharing. Not being generous. And so we see, just like Jesus says, well, in my kingdom, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus is saying, if you would simply follow me, you would really have fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning. But when men and women get caught up in this godless humanism, where man is the measure of all things, what they find at the end of that rainbow isn't the pot of gold that they thought. They find a life without fulfillment, a life without satisfaction, a life with really out any meaning. Which is why we have so many people in the world today who are killing themselves with suicide, who are on drugs, who are trying to just numb themselves and find meaning in the world because they bought in to the godless spirit that started back in Genesis chapter 11 and will pervade and be present up until the end time. Verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but will receive ruling authority as kings with the beast for one hour. It's a way of saying a short moment in time. And again, it reminds us that instead of Instead of even thinking about eternity, obviously, you know, we're not special creations of God and we just came here by chance and it's all about science and energy and all of that. And eternity, it's all about the moment. And so you see here, even the Antichrist and his kingdom, they're going to rule for just a moment in time. These kings, notice verse 13, have a single intent, a unified purpose and resolve. They will give their power and authority to the beast. But notice verse 14. These end time rulers of the world will make war with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But the Lamb will conquer them. He will be victorious over all his foes because... He is above all, Lord of lords. He is before all, King of kings. And those accompanying the Lamb are called faithful, chosen, and the call. By the way, I think that's referring to you and I. I think we will be accompanying the Lord at that time. So there you are in the Bible, Revelation 17, verse 14. Not because Jesus needs us. We're just accompanying him. He can take care of it all by himself. 
But because he's Jesus and who he is, he wants us to be along so that we share in his victory. Same thing today. We share in his victory that he's already won. Verse 15, then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated, where her fixed position is, notice, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Again, John is saying, I can't believe how pervasive and entrenched this spirit of Babylon is. This great prostitute, this godless philosophy where man is the measure of all things and the final reality, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. It's all over the world. You can't go anywhere in the world, John says, where you can't find this kind of humanistic philosophy. The ten horns that you saw, though, notice this, verse 16, very interesting, and the beast. These will eventually hate the prostitute. Why? Because she becomes an unwanted alternative to his own global worship. See, the Antichrist is going to get to the point where he won't even tolerate if you will, false worship of other things other than himself. It's going to be all about him at this point in history. So all other, even false religion and all of that is gone. At this final point in human history, before the Lord comes back, the Antichrist is basically saying, it's all about me. You, I'm the only one to worship. No one else. So they will hate the prostitute. Notice, they will make her desolate, naked. They will consume her flesh and burn her up with fire. And the Bible goes on to say in verse 17, God is sovereign in all this because he has put it into their minds to carry out or execute his purpose by making a decision to give their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled, completed, finished. See, this should give us encouragement. God's purposes will be done. God wins. Man doesn't win. And any men and women who go against God will lose every time. Because he's already determined it. The Bible says his word is forever settled in the heavens. It's already done from God's perspective. And his word will be completed and finished. I hope that gives you encouragement. God's word will be carried out to the letter. And therefore, the promises of God and the, and the hope that God's word gives us and all the encouragement and the refreshment and the nourishment and all that that God's word gives us is something we literally can latch onto and, and put our lives into because it will happen, just as God said. Notice, as for the woman you saw, again, notice, she is the great city that literally has sovereignty or holds sway over the kings of the earth. Her influence is unbelievable. The world leaders, the political leaders, the movers and shakers in religion, in politics, and in economics or commercialism are all under the sway of this false philosophy called the great prostitute of Babylon. Now again, next week, we're going to see that even though he's talked now about this spirit, he's going to talk a little bit more tangibly about the religion, the politics of it, and the commercialism, but he's going to also show us the great failure, fall, and downfall of it all. 
and why it's so important that we build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ rather than sinking sand. Hey, I've got one more minute. Turn back to the book of Psalms. I wanted to end with this, these verses out of Psalm 2 because they go along with actually Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And many people, when they read this psalm, they, they're like, well, where does that fit in? Well, it's actually a, a prophetic psalm that deals with the end of time. Notice what it says. I'll read this and close in prayer. Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries desiring plans or devising plans, excuse me, that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and his anointed king. They say, let's tear off the shackles they've put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. Then he angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in his rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This very day I have become your father. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal property. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. So now you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear. Repent in terror. Give sincere homage. Otherwise, He will be angry. And you will die because of your behavior when His anger quickly ignites. How blessed are all those who take shelter in Him. Psalm 2 is describing exactly what we read about tonight. Where at this one final moment of human history, the kings and political leaders of the world will turn against and literally fight the Lamb of God. And they will be crushed in a moment in time. God is saying to us today, we have a choice. Will we follow the Good Shepherd? Or we will follow this godless, humanistic philosophy that has taught man down through the ages that he, not God, is the measure of all things and the final reality. What are we living for? Who are we living for? Let's pray. God, we have been reminded tonight that there are always spirits behind everything that we see, even on this earth. Things are either being energized and empowered by your Holy Spirit, leading to worship and holiness and righteousness, or things are being empowered and energized by false evil, wicked spirits that lead men and women to think that they are the center of the universe, the final reality, rather than God. Lord, help us, even as those who say we are your followers and your children, 
to not live our lives so much about us, but to live our lives for you and for others. Help us to follow the example of Jesus himself, who even though he was God, became a man, humbled himself, dwelt on this earth, and died for our sins. God, help us not to get caught up in the value system of the world. That's why John said in 1 John, love not the world. He wasn't talking about people. He was talking about this godless, humanistic philosophy that is so pervasive and entrenched in our society that it's everywhere. Help us not to have the value of personal peace and affluence as our, the driving force and value system of our life. Help us to live for you, to live for eternity, to live for others. Because when we do, God, you promise us a life of abundance, a life of fulfillment, a life of satisfaction, a life of meaning. And help us to model that kind of life for others. Because many today, Lord, have become so influenced by this philosophy. Lord, they, they have no meaning to their life. And they're desperately still trying to find it. Help them to see those of us who have found the meaning to life, Jesus Christ, as we live our lives every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.